Sorry we took your child. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science of the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of your best loved and most hated movies. I'm Abby. I'm Frida. And this week's movie is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And welcome back because we've just had a break. This is our first. This is season oh, 11. Yeah. <laughs> welcome back because now we have changed everything to seasons. And so now we're up to season 11, episode one. But before we get into it, we'll do our traditional chat about what is going on with us in our science lives because as some of you might not know we're both full-time working science professionals in particular in the field of physics so abby what's going on in your science life oh i I don't have anything to say (laughs) no i'm really busy at the moment i'm i'm in a kind of like zone where you know you like feel like okay i'm focusing pretty well i'm trying to get lots of stuff done but it also just means that like i am I'm I'm also like in serious stress zone. <laughs> it's just that thing where I I was I was thinking about it the other day. It was like so much of physics right now is so much is like reading, so much is simulations, so much is um you know trying to get data and then looking at your data and then every now and then you got to do math. <laughs> so I've just had a week of math where Hi. I was just trying to um derive an expression and get a value and it's like oh man (laughs) sounds good to me (laughs) so yeah I'm just a bit like I feel like I'm a bit from it all but it's good it's good it's um it feels like I'm making you know it feels like I'm kind of moving forward if that makes sense good you know, you know the way you go through zones when you like it, people who don't know when you're doing research, you'll you'll go through phases if you just don't feel productive at all. A phase where you're like super busy and super stressed out and reaching deadlines. I feel like I'm in a mid phase with that. It's like I have a deadline that will be coming up in a couple of months, but at a but I've moved out of the what the fuck am I doing? Why is nothing working? I have no idea where do I go into. Okay, I kind of know what I need to do. Yeah, good. Uh, and it, that feels like a nice little kind of spot to be in. It sounds like a good spot. I think spot. it's the first time I've been in this spot in my entire PhD. Oh, hells. That's amazing. <laughs> um, How about you? Yeah, I mean, so busy and so much to do. And I just, I had this kind of thing where I had three papers published at the beginning of the year. And so then I thought I could like chill for a bit. But then I remembered that those papers, it's, that was like two years staged work. So then I thought I better get right. the next paper started because it will take some time to get it published. So um, I started this shut up and write Zoom thing with a couple of other people, happened to hey. both be women as well. And then on two o'clock, we kind of, we, we turn up, we say on Zoom, this is what our, what we're trying to write. And then we mute and we just write like with the cameras on. Um, yeah. And that's been really good to get writing. And then so this this last Friday, I so the thing that I was like trying to kind of get out the way first is, okay, so this study that I'm doing, the, the it's like the participants. How many participants were included in the study? And like, why those participants? And why were people excluded? And like, how does it all work? But the the, the reality is 
that this study and a lot of studies, like it's kind of evolves, like why you exclude patients and why you include patients and where patients go, like why you drop some off. It's very hard to keep track of all of that. And so when it comes to writing the paper, you have to make sure all the numbers add up. So I'm like, wait, why are the 286 ones according to this one? This one says 300. Like, where's the 14 or where's the four? Why are there five missing? Or why did I exclude those patients? And like, why is there four from there and three from there? It's like, it's a hellscape where, and like, if you're, especially if you're a numbers person, it's like you go over the numbers, like time after time and you can't get it to match up or you go over and it's like one missing or there's a discrepancy there. And so that's what I was doing was trying to make sure all the numbers matched and it all made sense. And then, of course, come up with a flow chart to describe the study numbers. And my flow chart was like, oh. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it was like hell in the form of a flow chart where it starts with how many cases in the registry and like how many had missing data and how many had poor quality that I had to exclude and where all the different groups. And this was for a deep learning. So these went in the training and the testing and the validation and the external validation, the second external validation, the clinical review and the other clinical review. And like, why a hundred and why not 99 and why not 300 fucked up, man, this shit is so fucked. That's like probably the most mind numbing part of science is Mm that shit so but and also in medicine this is something i've kind of had to learn that's like in medicine because you have participants and people actually included and you have to kind of keep track of everybody so that's what i was doing on friday um yeah that's i went on way too long about that so i'll shut up about that now but (laughs) i'm writing a paper and i hope it'll go well and that's it okay excellent the end this is just just for people (laughs) listening in like in terms of doing science and studies there are so many like things that people don't know are part of the job and things that we have to do there are like a thousand different things that we have to be so on top of and so good at and like people don't really imagine all those details um but like that's one big thing is study size Mm. it's really a big important thing which is incredibly boring um, and takes a lot of time and takes a lot of attention to detail so that's that and apart from that that's yeah and I'm, I'm trying to write I'm trying to apply for grants I'm trying to like do everything at once because I have this awareness that although I've got all this work and I'm doing all this work if I don't get on top of papers and if I don't get some grant money then my career will never take off so I feel like I'm doing three different jobs at once at any given moment yeah it's fucked up man just want to move to (laughs) europe where i can just get an ongoing position in a university and not have to beg every single year for my position to be renewed (sighs) all right (laughs) let's get into it then i think it varies here though i don't think i think it varies here and um i think like some people have ongoing positions and they just get small grants here and there but then it just means that if you only have small grants, then like, sure, you're there for teaching. But like, you know, there's only so much you can do research wise. There's only so many um, students and postdocs you can have yeah. as part of your team. The majority of, of uh, researchers will have huge grants. So I don't think escaping to Europe is going to help <laughs> too much. But I do think you should escape to Europe. Come move to Germany. I will. We know you love it there. So just fucking come to Europe. Go to Germany. I can see you all the time. We could do events together. (laughs) 
I will eventually when Just I'm like 45. I will when I'm 45. Oh, that's so far away. Well, I have a <laughs> child that I'm raising. It's, by the way, just as a hilarious thing, because I was so stressed out a couple of weeks ago. And so I scaled everything back. I'm like, what are my core responsibilities? My job and my child and everything else can go fuck itself. And like, I'm good at scaling things back. So I just focus on like what my core responsibilities. And I was chatting with my boss in our weekly chat and, you know, I'd, he knew I had a difficult week. And, and I said, you know, when I have a difficult week, I think like, what's my core responsibilities, um, you know, and how can I just focus on those? And he says, yes, like this project is more important than that project. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I mean, like as a parent, like at my job and having a child. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you mean big picture? I was like... Yeah, I mean, like I don't know if you heard about this, but I'm actually a person. Like I am a human. And <laughs> <laughs> I know I work for you and everything, but did you know I'm a person? I have other responsibilities. You are one of them. <laughs> it was such a hilarious conversation where he just thought I was talking about the you know the deep learning project versus yeah. the non deep learning project. I was like, nah, bitch. <laughs> Okay, so scientists are humans too. And it, it's not just about scientists, but anybody that works for anybody it turns out they're also people. And it's nice to um, consider that. But let's get into the movie because we've got a whole night ahead of us. And this week's movie is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977 film by Steven Spielberg. It's funny because season 10 also started with Spielberg movie that was ET that I chose so maybe next time we'll do Jaws it'll be a triple whammy but um (laughs) today it's Close Encounters and here's my summary let's draw this plot out all right it's the 70s and um the film starts with World War II planes popping up in a desert mysteriously the planes disappeared along with their pilots a long time ago but the planes have popped up in formation like no time has passed but the pilots are missing there we beat david laughlin and claude lacombe who are respectively well i should say it the other way claude lacombe and david laughlin who are a scientist and his french interpreter respectively but the interpreter is also um, used to be a cartographer i wonder if that will come up later or not <laughs> And then all this strange phenomenon uh, start to happen, including music from the heavens um, and people that are drawn to the same spot in the middle of the night to watch UFOs, including little Barry who runs away from home and, and who's later abducted. And one of the people is Roy Neary, who um, is fascinated by the UFOs to the dismay of his wife, Ronnie, who has enough on her plate. And he and all the others, uh, other people that were that sighted UFOs are obsessed over an image, which turns out to be of a place called Devil's Tower. So Roy and Barry's mum get to Devil's Tower against all the odds and witness the grand scale military operation to communicate with the aliens at the designating meeting place, which was Devil's Tower. And in the end, all the abducted people are returned unscathed, including little Barry, and the aliens choose Roy as their exchange student. They come in peace and they go in peace, and in the end, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And that is the gist of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
It's actually a hella complex plot and there's a lot of plot details that honestly you can blink and miss it. I mean, it's like super subtle. Mm. A lot of it is not, it's not straightforward. It's kind of hard to understand. I've seen it once before when I was young and was thoroughly confused. And I'm happy to say that this time I'm much less confused. Um, But I'll pass to you first, Abby, to find out what your reaction to the film is, please. Off you go. Um... I don't, I don't, can I just say that I'm getting my period today? So I feel like my brain, like I have period brain today. So I'm feeling really fucking, what am I doing? Should I ask you particularly? Okay. So let me just say, had you you seen it Okay. Close Encounter. Like it's, it's one of the best movies ever made. Okay. Like it's one of the best movies ever made. It's one of my, it, it is without a doubt, one of the best alien movies ever made. It is in my opinion, the best first contact movie. And that's like, I literally am a, like, it's pipping arrival for me just a bit. Yeah. Um, it is just, I don't know, I, I absolutely adore it. Everything about it. There's very little in it that like, even like, even the bits that might seem a little bit hokey when you, this is like 1977, like, come on. It's amazing. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I love it. It's so good. I was, when I watched it on a Friday night, I was just like, my eyes were just so wide. I I had seen it before, but I think that I was just too little to get it. And I was like, I couldn't take Mm. my eyes off. And it's got so many elements to it. Like it's, it is adult. It's complex. It's complicated. Right. And I love that. It makes you pay attention. It gives you, um, you know, it feeds you complex plot and which I love. I love that it like allows us to use our brains. Um, but it's also there's hokiness to it, there's silliness to it, there's insanity yeah. to it. Like there's insanity, like there's a lot of shit which is really crazy about it. Um, over the top and amazing and miraculous and terrifying. And so you're it's so much going on, and there's this amazing quality about it, which is sort of really Spielberg-ish, where he leaves a lot of mystery. But still, you never feel like there's any lag time where nothing is happening, even though the mystery really is up until the end. But there's so many little things that it's like, oh, the dusting for the sleep. So there's little dramas. Oh, my God, they're going to dust. They're going to put everyone to sleep. So we have to, like, chase. You know, we have to get up Devil's Tower because then they're going to put us to sleep with the the powder. You know, it's like all these teeny little bits of action. So they feed you stuff all the times so you're always satisfied but still leave such an amount of mystery till the end so you're still anticipating it so you know mm. he just is an amazing filmmaker like he's yeah. such a good filmmaker and every shot like everything he does is set up with such amazing vision it's just really amazing like when we did the sci-fi miniseries like obviously quite a few Spielberg stuff came up and in the James Cameron series when they're talking about it like just the way that they do keep referring to it and they do keep referring and and it does like he really is kind of an originator of science fiction in in a modern sense through this movie and it's almost like him creating this movie allowed other filmmakers to come along and go hey I'm gonna do something and yeah it's just and again when you it's similar we've had a couple of movies like this now where it's like People who are clever with filmmaking, um, to be able to create something so grand 
in the 70s yeah without all the technology that we have nowadays but still make it look so good it's just yeah it's great i mean the ship at the end i just i am that is one of my most favorite things any 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 science fiction i'm including all of star trek in this that is the best spaceship in any science fiction the detail in that ship as the shot pans out as it grows as it expands as it like at one point it looks like it's a city upside down inside the ship it's just absolutely glorious mm. okay i take it back the derelict on alien sorry but they're very different ships the greebles so. and the nernies <laughs> i was going to bring it up later but whatever greebles and nernies and also the fact that they can really go for it i mean he really goes for it with that spaceship mm. And, and it meets your expectations and exceeds it. So it's such a risky yeah. thing to hold off, hold off, hold off, and then show it to you and yeah. it, it, it exceeds your expectation. It's always really risky, you know, like what if, it, what if it's too silly? What if it just looks too hokey? And it did look silly and hokey, but also this, but also that, but also this, and it keeps going and it's mm. so amazing. And um, yeah, the risks pay off. I did see that he... I saw an interview where he sort of put that idea together by looking at over, like he just saw a bunch of stuff that he thought looked amazing. I think some of it was like overhead shots of cities and like power lines, um, you know, right. where he put sort of different images together to come up with that. Um, he really is like yeah. a, a vision. Like I think about the word visionary and it really, he really suits that because he has these visions and he executes them and he really is in every sense of the word. Yeah. A visionary. Um, okay, let's. So, what I might, what we might do now is, um, as I was watching the movie, I just jotted down some best bits or whatever. Did you do that? Did you have any? Do you want to have any best bits? Um, yeah, no, I do. I do have. I've got. I've got some. Um, oh, so like early on when the uh, in the control room, and there's the aircraft that have encountered something. And I, I don't know why, but I just really enjoy that whole sequence of the, the guy in the control room. Do you want to report yeah. a UFO? And and the silence and the... Mo and you can feel all the intention behind those moments of like them knowing. It's like, do you want to report it? And the and the guys in the, in the planes being like, well, yeah, but no, because, mm. you know. So just the way they come back af the after pause. a while then with like negative, we do not. Yeah, and you're that, like, that, oh, just a yeah. comment so it was on just that. something about that. Just a comment on that quickly. That's a good example of a tiny little detail which trusts us to understand what the intention is because it's got a lot of layers. The pause, mm. do you want to report that pause and the no and the pause and uh, well, this uh, that, 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 is communicating to us that there is a weight to reporting a UFO that even you might not want to do that because there's some sort of political consequences for you perchance or something like that you don't want to come across all that's being communicated with just the, the pause and the facial expressions it's just one scene out of many scenes which which trusts us what else have you got yeah um the 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 first shot that we get when he's in the he's driving his van i love the entire setup of it him driving his van on the roads so the car's behind his on his map mm. he's like just yeah 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 the people getting pissed off and then that shot when he's there and yeah 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 and then the lights instead of going around they just go up 
And it's like, you don't need anything more. It's so perfect. Just the up, the few extra lights, and you're just like, oh, damn. Gasping. Yeah. Uh, moments like that make me wonder what it was like to experience that in the cinema for the first time before anything like this was ever made before. Like having that moment, being able to be there for the mm. first time you get to see something like this, mm. like and just done so, executed so well. So yeah, yeah, that was just exceptional. What else you got? Um, I, sorry, this, these are in or so <laughs> I don't know why, but I really enjoy the bit where they were like, they realized that it was coordinates. So they were like, we need a map. And I just, the time period again, you're like, they're like, where are we going to go? There's a globe. There's a globe in the office. And they go out, they're trying to get the globe out. And the guy's like, that's a $2,500 globe. What are you doing? It's just like, I don't know. Just like the, I don't know why. I just really enjoyed the scene. The whole thing of them moving it and then carrying the globe into the thing. Drama. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A little drama, like a bit of drama, getting the globe in, turning the globe. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, pre-Google Maps. (laughs) um i did love the sort of 70s language of how do we get every christian out of there because (laughs) i had to laugh at that because that they wanted to come up with a story that would get every living christian out of there and i was like (laughs) in my mind i was like just tell them the jews are moving in Sometimes I think we need to remind people that you are Jewish. Just just as a little disclaimer. <laughs> it's readily apparent. All right. <laughs> My fixation on Spielberg being yeah. a bit of a hint. All right, your turn. What else? Um, I just want to talk about the shiny red suits. I had that too, all the way. Why red, the shiny, shiny red suits? suits? Also, when they all came out, they all looked like the same person. Yeah, totally. I think maybe that was probably done on purpose. Like, they all look like they were all wearing their sunglasses. And then, like, so the distinction between him versus them at the end kind of thing. Yeah. Made him seem more unique, I guess, or something. But, yeah, it was just it was just really funny. And it was, was a like, callback. why are they in shiny red suits? It was a callback to, we've done it. It was a callback to um, Biodome. Yes. <laughs> shiny red jumpsuits, maybe canon. Uh. Um, (laughs) just a funny thing about this is just so random but at the end scene where they're cutting back and forth between the crowd of scientists there's a shot where like these two scientists have the biggest necks i've ever seen did you (laughs) no (laughs) it was like they cut back to the crowd and at the front there's these two men and their necks are the biggest necks ever (laughs) they're just two people there and it it just it jumped out we, I don't know. I thought maybe you'd notice okay. the necks, but you didn't. No, I did I was I like, did why not. do those guys have such big necks? <laughs> oh um, go on. Anything else? Uh, the, I, I was obsessed with the neighbor hanging out of the window with her hairdryer eavesdropping oh yeah i loved all the neighbors oh, when they're having when they're having a fight she's out the window and she's got the hairdryer going she's like trying to listen and there's you know what i was like i no word of a lie that would 100 be me i'm not ashamed of it if you're going to have a loud vocal argument on your lawn then you better make damn sure i can hear what this argument is about like, if you're going to make it public then i want to know all the details i want all the gossip i want to know who's in who's out who's right who's wrong <laughs> I want to hear the ending. 
You don't give me fucking snippets of your little fucking personal gossipy life. You make it, you make it public. You make damn sure. So I will hang out the window with the hair dryer. Fuck the hair dryer. I'll just hang out the window with a cup of coffee and watch. Yeah, I know popcorn. <laughs> yeah, oh man, uh, the escalation. I love how um, he he tries to quiet the visions, and he's like, "I'm all right," and then he really goes off, and I love that. And I just, yeah. I always think, I did, I do know that. Um, I do know that – so I watched the original version. It was 211 minutes and Spielberg um, cut it down to 137 minutes in his cut. There's a few versions um, and because they needed a very fast release um, for financial reasons and so it wasn't exactly what he wanted. And I know that he thought, oh, my God, did I really drag out the the Richard Dreyfus going crazy thing? Is it, was that too much? Right. And and. But I, I think that he really goes nuts, but I think that it really ups the stakes so much more yeah. that when they finally see that it's a real place and go there, it, like it builds really nicely in my view. Like that insanity, that, right, that crazy yeah. scene really upped the stakes for me that it kind of made yeah. everything else make sense, that like the cl- clamoring up the devil's tower and the finding other people with the same vision and oh it's devastating yeah um that is kind of all oh no yeah this this, i love this line okay sorry i love the duo uh when we'll talk about it in a bit actually we'll talk about the characters but um i love this repeated are you seeing this yes good Again, are you seeing this? Yeah. Yes, good. Like they're, they're checking with each other that they're actually seeing that. I thought yeah. that was very sweet. Um, and that's it from me from Best Bits. Anything else for you? Uh, I just, the, the ship opening scene is one of the most beautiful pieces of cinema. Um, and the only other thing I just think is, um, I just found it really entertaining. The priest reading to the, like the satin red devil people. Um, okay. Yeah, I just it was just funny. Reminded me of Contact, the religious sort of. There's a big old Irish accent up on him. Oh, wasn't he? Yeah, Irish. Um, well, speaking of cinematic scenes, well, the the abduction of Barry. I mean, it doesn't come up in the rest of the episode, but you know, yeah. it's truly, truly. It's like it's like that classic bit in a good science fiction film. Where there's a horror scene. There's always like a good horror scene yeah. in any good science fiction movie. But obviously, with with the keyhole is sort of blaring the red light and so he because he's a child he opens the door to want to see it all and you see the mother um you know look at him sort of lit his silhouette lit by the light and wow it's gorgeous and I love the all the sequences with Barry and his mother are so good because I never felt like she always was running to protect him. It wasn't that that annoying yeah. tropey horror film thing where they're standing back frozen not running. She is running. She is saving him. She's doing everything she can. She's doing everything right. And then there's just the, the cat, the, the trap door, which, which we are alerted of in an earlier scene is the thing which she misses, which he goes out the little cat flap. So I, I, yeah. I just love that scene. It really felt real. Like she was doing everything she could to save him, but she was just terrified and her hands are shaking. Yeah. And it was a force that was, I guess, bigger than both of them. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. let's just go over cast, I think, um, because I just wanted to talk. I was about to speak about the duo of Bob uh, Balaban and Francois mm. Truffaut because they play oh. um, 
this ex-cartographer, now translator and the scientist and their dynamic, it's almost like they were perfectly well matched and almost it became a little slapstick at the end because they were they were excited. They're funny. Pourquoi? Why? Yeah, why? You know, their little like quick crazy banter in French and English was so appealing to me. I adored the two of them. Loved them, right? They're so good. Absolutely adored them. Oh, I love I loved the decision, right? I thought it was a great way to do it to have the two to have the um to be able to have the two of them and and the translator and stuff. But I also thought to make a movie that's so American centered, that's so, you know, to make a movie like that and have one of your main characters not be American, to have your main scientist be French. I just, I don't know, there was just something really beautiful about it and it made it so much more realistic and believable because it wasn't just these like two Americans back and forth. There was a very different kind of, it created a very different feel to the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Yeah, and I love Bob Balabad. He came up in Altered States as well. So that's the mm-hmm. second that's the second time that we've seen him. Um all right, who else is in it? Obviously Richard Dreyfus is in it. Richard Dreyfus is was hired ultimately above other people because of his childlike quality. And I know this is a theme for Spielberg. We discussed it thoroughly in ET about the idea that children have wonderment um, and adults are cynical. And so he wanted to have somebody that could really sell that. Um, I've seen something amazing and I need to follow it. Amazement kind of thing. And also what I read was that he was going to have other people. Steve McQueen, I think was a contender. Um, I don't know if he was saying this off the cuff, but he mentioned Gene Hackman. And what he thought was that if it was somebody that was less childlike, that that when he basically abandoned, it would have made it look very different if he had abandoned, like, because he basically abandons his family and we might not forgive that as basically a sacrifice. Yeah. Um, if it was someone other than Richard Dreyfus, because of how childlike he is and presents. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think um, I can kind of see that. I have my own thoughts on the whole family abandonment okay. thing, but um, all right, we'll talk yeah. about that in themes. Um, but yeah, he's really just so fun to watch. He's wild to watch. We'll talk more about him later. His wife is played by Terry Gar, and then we have Barry, who's Carrie Guffey, and his mother is played by Melinda Dillon. Um, who are like oh, just the kid is so freaking cute. He is adorable. Oh, he's all cute. He looks like my niece. He's got that little fun chin. His little chin <laughs> and his little tongue is always out. He's so cute. And she's amazing. She plays every color of this character. Like her terror and her mm. craziness and her determination. It's beautiful. It's so crazy how Spielberg can make a movie that is about aliens, but but then really like beat at the heart of it like mother, child, these like very basic human, universal yeah. human things. Um, and then a quick other note of cast, which is really interesting, is that there's this guy called Joseph Allen Hynek. I'll bring him up later, but he's a very important person in the fields of UFO studies and they put him in the movie. There's a shot of him oh. 
at the end scene he's the he's at the foreground and he has a pipe in his hand and he's got like a beard and glasses and they actually put him put him in the film as one of the people present because indeed he was working on um, the U.S. Air Force investigations into UFOs, Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book between in the 40s to the 60s. He was working on all of those projects, so he would certainly have been there if such a thing did take place. And he advised them and everything. And the title of the film does come from him. I'll get into that later. Let's get into themes. So the themes I picked were, again, a communication. It's like, arrivals basically using aliens to talk about communication and how we communicate um you know and that first comes there's a lot of communication people speaking different languages not understanding each other the family not listening talking over like sounds and struggling to communicate Mm. and struggling to talk um and you know how do we communicate with one another kind of thing Um, music being the sort of breakthrough there um and there's an interesting thing, and I guess the other theme would be, um, I guess from Spielberg's point of view, where he was in his life was the anxiety over um, having a family, getting married, having children, and specifically the anxiety of an artist who has, quote unquote, a vision in their heads that they're obsessed with. Um, how you can exist inside a nuclear family environment where you have a lot of those expectations. And so Spielberg sort of exploring that anxiety. Before we get into that, just the interesting thing about the communication and the language thing is that um, Spielberg, you know, being Jewish, um, it's not strange for him to have like biblical references and, the Devil's Tower being a huge icon here at the place where they go to communicate. And it's very interesting because the Bible story about why we have different languages um, is, uh, is a story called the Tower of Babel or Bavel in Hebrew. And the Tower of Babel was a tower that humans were trying to build to reach God, to fight God. And in order to stop them from building the tower up, uh, God created different languages so that they couldn't communicate and do anything together. And that is the biblical explanation of why we have different languages is a way for us not to be able to work together. Um, And so the irony of the fact that it's at a tower that everybody comes together to find a shared language. So I think that is just very interesting uh, reference. Um, about communication and language and then music being the shared language. We'll get into that later. But the other theme which comes across is to do with the anxiety of um, manhood and having a family and having children. And I know you had some things to say about that. Off you go. Um, I, I don't know that that's how I would put it. Okay. For, for what I have to say, um, my thoughts were, when, like, originally, I think, I think I've always pictured it as being quite selfish, you know, the fact that he leaves his family behind. I've always imagined that to be a very selfish action. Yeah. And just watching it this time around, I was like, the chaos of the family 
And as you said, the lack of communication, the inability to connect with each other, the talking over each other. And as you said, the wife was very patient. But then we have that scene, right? That scene where she wakes up and he's in the the shower or the bath and he's got everything running. And that's the moment where you see her patience completely is exasperated. She's out, she's done. And all it made me think was about men's mental health and the way that we have treated men's mental health historically. Because in that scene, right, she starts, she is screaming, like the screaming out of that woman made me want to shake her um, at him about how she hates him and all these things. And, and, and it's about our friends don't even speak to us anymore. And it's like, well, that's very superficial what you're saying. You have the, your partner is in front of you struggling right now. And he's there and he's saying to her, I'm scared. I don't know what's happening to me. I'm scared. Please like hug me, hold me. So he is begging her for assurance and comfort and to help him understand what's going on. And she, because of this historical view that we have of men when they're in a mental health crisis, is just annoyed at him because he's not being the man of the house, because he's not out working, he's not, because something else is going on, because he's got this obsession that she, she deems to be ridiculous. And the kids are screaming and crying, and the kids are shouting that they hate him, they're all like, everyone's just, this whole madness that I, it made me view it very differently. It made me kind of come away from it and think, do you know what, actually... I think it's all right that he left his family because they're not helping each other in this environment. Like they're not, there's no support. There's no network. There's no um, understanding going on here. And I actually was like, he found what he needed to find in the end. <laughs> and, and I was like, I hope she found what she needed because it wasn't each other. Yeah, I agree with you on some parts on like, yes, it's, I think that it's definitely like a poem to the anxiety of what does happen um, to people in the weight of those expectations. But I would just be a little fairer to her because she's obviously holding down everything. But I actually didn't see it as a mental health thing. To me, I saw it more as a tortured artist thing that he's he's got an artistic vision that's obsessing, um, he's obsessing over and he needs to mean something. He has to get it out and it's disrupting his family life. And and so that that's what I read, not too much as a mental health crisis. I read it as more as obsessive obsessive state that he was in which made it like impossible for him to function in that environment and he needed to leave to, to in order to fulfill what he needed to fulfill as a person and she went to family yeah. and you know and that, and, that, and, and 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 i'm assuming they found peace in separate ways and it mirrors in real life like spielberg um did have a couple of relationship breakdowns because it is you know if you are a visionary like that and you are obsessive then it doesn't uh, coalesce with family life and I understand that and I, and I think you're right and I think it's probably as more what the take is from Spielberg's perspective I was just saying that this is this is what I felt yeah. watching the movie and this is what it made me think of and I just do really want to emphasize because I think it's a very important distinction to make that yes of course being the partner of somebody who has mental health um, problems uh, can be exhausting and tiring and of course you can run out of patience and of course mental health is ultimately your own responsibility within a certain degree because you you can take it as like I don't have the capacity myself to deal with this or to help you go through this right now that's fine everyone has their boundaries and everyone can do that 
but having the attitude of like um you're doing this to yourself and it's your own fault yeah. and you need to you need to change your mentality is a complete and utter lack of understanding about mental yeah. health and i just i just want to be really really clear about that so sorry i don't mean to go on about that but i just i just wanted to be very very clear about it yeah um, it's an important topic okay we're getting into the next section is trope of the week i have three tropes from this movie um abby you want to throw me your trope uh mine is just the classic reference to einstein being an alien come on yeah (laughs) it was like einstein was right einstein was probably one of them (laughs) just speaking of people i just love how we always like (laughs) this this vision of like this guy just because like he was smart and did some good science that that means he must have been an alien i know i'm so over that trope as well (laughs) that guy was a huge asshole by the way well i read his i read a biography on him called was it genius was that that was that the Feynman one whatever i read this huge uh, biography on einstein when i was like 18 and i was like yeah fuck (laughs) This is what gets me right. That guy is a prick. Seriously, and the way fucking the way people drop in, like they're always, you know, like oh, oh, if only, oh, there's no other, um, no one has ever been like Einstein, or oh, like there's never been another scientist or some shit like that, and it's like. Dude, like, not being funny, but science was easier in the early 1900s because nobody fucking knew shit, okay? They just had to find all these discoveries and now we've all got to, like, go way more fucking detailed and specific on all that shit. Interesting. Um, that's not to downplay. I'm not downplaying it. No, but, like, but seriously, my, my thing is, like, the whole concept of science is standing on the shoulders of other people, right? Yeah. You know, that that's what you do. You build on what came before. Yeah. But people, for some reason, with Einstein, always act like nothing came before Einstein. Yeah. Like, Einstein just rocked out and went, hey, papers, Nobels, let's go. And it's like, no, everything Einstein did was based on work other people did. He wasn't the first person to observe the photoelectric effect. That happened, like, 60 years before him. It's just, what happens is many scientists observe things and then, like just weren't really interested in exploring it any further because they were doing something else. And then other scientists came along and kind of went, oh, hey, I might try and figure out why that thing happened. Photoelectric effect. Done. He also had a big... He was at a time where scientists could get to the get up to the level of rock stars too, which doesn't happen anymore these days because yeah. we went through this in our last main episode that that was a time where science... Like, it was based on science and technology around the time leading up to between, like, let's say the 20s and the 60s, leading up to all of that was, like, when science was the thing and so he had this whole rock star persona. Yeah. So he had a lot of aura around him, a cult of personality. Very interesting. Einstein's wife is um, just a comment. He didn't, no, she she was a collaborator with him, but she was never cited. She didn't find most things, but she worked with him, but she was never cited. And he abandoned her. Yeah. I mean, he made her life very miserable until she basically divorced him because she didn't want to divorce him. So he actually wrote up a... Um, a contract for her to sign like this is the conditions under which i will agree to be married to you and that was so that was so horrible that eventually she just had to bow out so he could marry yeah uh, he could marry his cousin elsa by the way while that was all happening elsa had a child out of wedlock no one knows what happened to that child that was given up for adoption 
he has a trail of devastation behind him. Yeah, he was a terrible person. And I think it was really normal. I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying it was right, but I'm just saying I think it was really common at that time that women wouldn't be cited. And a lot of women were collaborating with men, but they weren't cited because it was also a time where women weren't allowed to go to university and weren't allowed to get degrees and PhDs and stuff like that. So that they weren't allowed to actually get the they weren't also allowed to get the credit. Um but I do want to be like I I don't know maybe you know better from that biography but I don't think that the claim that seems to be going around at the moment that it was actually his wife that was the genius no, no, and no, she no, was no, the no. one who did everything is that's not true no, no, at no, all no, 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 no. I think somebody made a viral TikTok video basically claiming this that actually all of the work came from her and that no, 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 and then okay. people are like oh did he even do any work after her and everything and it's like no, no. it's also, it, it probably came from the patent office from a lot of other scientists. So, you know, <laughs> not saying it came from Einstein. What the fuck? No, I mean, Mrs. Einstein, they, they met because they were both science people. That was their initial relationship. So they, yeah. they did work together. Um, yeah, there are loads of women. There's some interesting stuff. I used to love reading old papers where you look at the acknowledgements on the bottom. That's when the women might be mentioned in the acknowledgements. And it's very interesting, actually. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so I've got three tropes. Um, yeah. <laughs> the first one is the red shirt trope because they, they had three people clambering up Devil's Tower. They had to have the third person along just so he could be put to sleep by yeah. the sleeping dust. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, that was incredibly tropey. But um, but um, it was, again, it was a story. It was like a good plot device because then you could see, oh, okay, that's how close the dust is. You know, but yeah, they had the third person. Yeah, just just to uh, kill him off. Sorry, sorry. One second, uh, Daisy. <sighs> Fuck the comment section is fucking ignore me it, up. Ignore oh, we it, haven't ignore, even gone to the UFOs. Trope. I I I give me your second trope. <laughs> Nineteen twenty-seven, my favorite year. Everyone's favorite year for physics. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, um, okay. So the red shirts <laughs> was the first one. The second trope, what I did was uh, government secrets. Um, big yeah. trope and um here's my my third trope which is actually my my first trope which is these are coordinates i need to call this <laughs> yes. out because in so many movies when aliens are giving numbers or someone's giving numbers and everyone's like this is a series of numbers it almost appears random and someone's like wait i happen to be a cartographer these are coordinates. And I always think, <laughs> wouldn't you check that? Like the first thing you might check. Like, I just, I love that trope in films where everyone is just like flabbergasted and someone's like, oh my God, I have a reason for knowing these are coordinates. And it's because it has nothing to do with me being here. But did you know I'm also a cartographer and I'm telling you these are coordinates. Trope. It's these are Beautiful. the coordinates trope. All right, let's get into the science. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. We haven't even gotten into UFOs. This episode is fucking crazy. And someone just commented, <laughs> shit just got real. And I think that every like fourth episode, shit gets real with, shit does get real. That, that, that's what we bring at Science of the Movies. We haven't even gotten into the fact that it's a music thing. And yay, Frida got to do a movie and it's my movie and music. It's all about music. So here we yeah. go. Okay. Literally, my, my science question to you was going to be, how do they use the music? And I was like, I don't even need to fucking message her to ask her that shit. As if Frida's not going to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is the meaning of the music in this movie? Let's go. So the music here, 
Yeah. It's based on what's called the solfege scale, which we might remember from Julia Andrews singing, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Di, Do. Is, uh, it goes back very far, this scale, all the way back to the 11th century, actually. And it's oh, designed wow. to allow people to hear the pitches of a piece of music when they hear it for the first time. So they could hear music for the first time and be able to precisely identify it. So in other words, it's to hear music more accurately. It's a way to teach music in the classroom. And of course, it's it sort of comes along with a more mathematical uh, approach to understanding musical harmonies. Um during the Renaissance is when we really they really started to employ the idea of like fixed intervals, so interlocking fourths, fifths, sixths, and so on to describe different harmonies in music. So if we take an example of, um, let's just take Wagner's bridal chorus, Wagner bridal chorus. So the opening. Dun, 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 is actually perfect ascending fourths. That's how you would describe it according to this, this way of understanding music. Dun, dun is a fourth and it's ascending. Um, and so, and, and in the solfege scale, you would say sol, do, do, do. And so basically all of this is a way to uh, listen very accurately to music. And it teaches students... Um, it teaches students how to listen to music, right? Um, right. Now, and another example, and it also helps, okay, so it, it helps listen to music, but it also helps to understand what a composer might be doing, what are the themes that they might be applying and repeating, and that helps you memorize very long pieces of music. Um, and then it also helps you write music if you are using certain rules or certain interlocking uh, interlocking notes, for example, or certain harmonies. Um, and then if you want to add a little bit more color to this, if you will, to the understanding of musical harmonies and melodies. So Isaac Newton got involved with this as well. And he actually assigned to each of the solfege syllables, seven colors of the rainbow. Okay. But I, um, well, it's funny because like that article that I read said rainbow, but I guess we can call it the <laughs> it's not a rainbow, but it's the electromagnetic scale. But so he actually assigned <laughs> colors. So um, if we want to talk about the uh, the 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 musical notes that the aliens were speaking in, re mi do do. So is orange, yellow, red, red, blue. Um, okay. And what he surmised was that each note uh, vibrates with each color. That, that was his idea. Right. Um, and I liked reading this because it gives you a bit of an idea how they might have translated that musical five notes into an electromagnetic signal, by the way. Is, was that the, is that the right color sequence that they then used? Um, it actually isn't, but that's okay. Like it's, oh. it, by the way, even the way that they describe the mathematical changes isn't always correct, but honestly, I don't really think yeah, it matters. Okay. Um, but that is yeah. Isaac Newton's uh, assignment. So that there is actually a way to take each of the notes in the solfege scale and change it to a color. And maybe that color right. corresponds to a frequency. And maybe that frequency yeah. is how you can transmit this music as an electromagnetic signal 
So it all kind of comes right. together. So it's, we're talking about chrome. Yeah. We're talking about tone um, and light, right? And so the aliens having this multimodal communication, which is music, which is light. Um, so it's sound, it's light, and it's color. Okay? It's like many different yeah. ways. Um, Daisy Bear, we're talking about the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We're talking it's about pinned, 1977's <laughs> film by Spielberg, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's about male anxiety. It's about music. It's about communication. It's about aliens. It's about Steven Spielberg. There's many themes and many structures, and that's what we're talking about. And right now we're talking about the musical aspect of it and what it means and why the aliens were communicating in music. Guys, okay, so... That is also sorry. Music. This is a live recording of our podcast. If you just check the pinned comment and the and the introduction, and um, also the people who stayed that we asked at the start to just let people know in the comments. If you could do that, that would be super awesome. Thank I you. love it. This okay. recording is Frida going will off get the through this movie. <laughs> this recording is she going. Will. Yeah, off Eric, the Eric, you're Eric, here. And you don't. Eric, even, you're not even backing out. us up, Eric. man. Come on, <laughs> Eric. Okay, guys, go off the chain. Okay. Now, so those are the music. So we have the solfege scale. We have the way to transmit it in color. Um, and then we come to the hand signals. We come to the hand signals because there's a scene where the French guy um, shows how each of the notes, re, mi, do, do, so, has a corresponding hand signal. And that is actually based on a real system that is designed to teach the solfege scale in the classroom with hand signals. It was invented by a person called John Kerwin and then adapted by a composer called Zoltan Kodali. And what it does is it offers an alternative nonverbal communication. And of course, it's like a more precise, it's a very clear objective sign and signals and it reinforces the previous message. So you, you have the... Uh, you know, your oral understanding of the music you're listening to for the first time. But I guess the hand sig signals make that very clear and very precise and reinforces that message. And so at the end of the movie, when he, they, they use the music and the lights and the color, but then he reinforces the message of the music with the hand signal as well. And I guess what that does, it offers another modality. One, it's another modality. So maybe they don't, uh, listen maybe they don't have ears or maybe they can't talk I don't know it's just another option but I suppose he introduces a sort of a Rosetta Stone if you will um yes hand signals so that is a way for us to this is the translation of the musical notes mm. in hand signals and it presents a jumping off point to expand on the sign language that might um happen between the humans and the aliens so that is right. sort of my explanation of the music and of the hand signals. Yeah. And that's really cool, actually, mm. to think about it from the Rosetta Stone perspective. And if you want to hear more about that, go back and listen to our Arrival episode. That's right. We're not going to go any more over communication because Arrival owns that topic. Um, and I guess I just wanted to put a discussion question. But this is the OG. Like, this is, to me, like, I mean, this is, it's the OG freaking first contact, trying to find a way to communicate, like, using the musical. It's just so beautifully done. 
It is beautifully done. I also think that it's more subtle than Arrival. It uses communication as a theme without like drumming it home the way Arrival really focuses on communication really clearly. And this is just one thing of this movie has so much. But I I wanted to ask you, what is your opinion of why do the aliens choose music to communicate? What do you think is the reason? I don't know. Like, I'm I'm just trying to think now. I mean, we... Like, we obviously interact with light more than anything else. Um, It is entirely possible that light isn't... So in um, Andy Weir's book, Project Hail Mary, the species in that don't interact with light. Um, They communicate... They don't have sight. They didn't develop eyes. So they communicate through sound. So they use vibrations in objects. And they can really precisely tell what something is, where something is... um, and what, what is trying to be communicated through just the subtle vibrations in sound waves. Mm, mm. So so maybe that's why. I don't know why music, but maybe we, we could take some assumption that they've been observing humanity and they find that we can communicate through music, that we can communicate emotion and feeling and intention through music. So if they don't know our language, in order they don't know the structure of the words, they don't know how to formulate a message in words and if they don't use light as their method of communication then i guess you could through observation figure out okay well we can use different frequencies of sound um as some sort of way or maybe they recognized that scale and recognized um those frequencies and were like okay we could turn this into a message like we have to assume that any species that would come that any species that would be coming to earth and making like first contact with earth uh, would have had all of these thoughts would have the intelligence to be like, okay, how will we make contact? How will we form communication with the species that we, that we're going to go and see? Cause that's how we would think about it going out to another planet. So Mm. I think we would just take it that they are more intelligent than us and, and have realized that this is probably the best way to try to form some sort of commonality between us. Yes. And the way that arrival used images. Yes. I I think that, I think I agree with that topic about it's the, it's, it's something, it's a commonality thing. It's a, it's, there's universality to music and also we can passively, humans are able to sort of just passively listen to music. Um, They are also trying to show a message of peace and positivity. And so they use music, which some people describe as being the best of us, like our arts and music is the best part of humanity. And so they communicate to us through the best thing about us as a way to have a message of warmth and positivity as well. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm. Um, And then I guess another question about the music is that the thing about music is that, and even about the idea of chroma in music. And so Newton saying this music is this color. And so you might, and so there is theories that say that you hear music and you think the color, like maybe that there is some sort of intuition but that's even scientific. I would talk about from an emotional point of view that there is an emotional thing with music that like, obviously songs make you feel a certain way, like certain scales yes. 
Some scales are more divine and some scales are more melancholy and some scales are used to talk about forgiveness. And it's like this amazing thing that a composer will talk in a certain scale if they want to communicate a certain thing. And so maybe the aliens were also using their music to communicate the mood. And so what I wanted to ask what your opinion is when you hear that, da, 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 da. what do you feel like? What do you think they were trying to communicate? Like, what's the message? It's positive, isn't it? Yes. It's not that that's not a doom and gloom. That's not a we're coming to invade and destroy you. That's a hello. Hello. <laughs> we're curious. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I actually. It's, yeah, it's like. It's welcome. Yeah. Open yes, the door. That's a good way to it's put like it. open the yeah. door, let us in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We are nice. <laughs> Come on in. It's cozy. <laughs> Ignore the big red things in the sky. Here is a cup of tea and a pillow for your back. Sorry that I can't get the tune right. What is it? Sorry we took your child. <laughs> Here is your child back. He had a nice time. <laughs> Sorry we had to scare you for a bit. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't mean. But yeah, no, I think you're right. It's not. It's you know. It's it's a. It has an immediate effect on the whole movie of making you feel like everything's okay. It's you funny. Know, everything's yeah. calm. This it's isn't. Exciting. This isn't a horror. There's scary bits to it that we're afraid of, and there's bits, but this isn't an. In- we're not leading you to this horror ending. It's like this is this is a moment of hope. I'm taking that snippet Hopeful. of you saying, "Sorry, we took Hopeful. your child." That's definitely for the beginning of the episode. It's funny because it starts off; it's incredibly positive, and everyone feels positive about it. I think if they have. The aliens do seem to have a. They, obviously, there's a psychic connection to the people that see them. Yeah, and they all yeah. feel happy. So obviously, you know, they're happy about it, which means that it is um, a happy. It's they want to communicate happiness. That is why all the people yeah. um, who have communicated with them are like so happy about it. And but it is funny is that it starts off happy, but then we do get this like, wait, maybe this is horrible. And, and all these, because there's the abduction scene, obviously, but the, the clouds feel ominous and also Devil's Tower, all mm. these things think, is this bad? Is this bad? I do think there's the drop octave of the do, do down the bottom. Is this bit more like bassy? So I think, and, and and the way when the aliens do it, it does blow the the glass out because it's not. It's yeah. a, it is significant and it it is scary too. It's it's everything together. It's meaningful and important. Um. Okay. Moving on. Uh, this is a little thing that I wanted to to talk about. Um. I touched on this. Um. Because the music is then turned into a signal, a mathematical signal, which is then transmitted as um microwaves from the goldstone deep space communication complex which shows up in the film goldstone um we talked about this so much in contact episode about radio telescopes Mm. fascinating topic i encourage anyone that wants to know more about uh, radio telescopes and communication with deep space contact is the episode for that but just briefly goldstone is um one of three on earth uh, satellite communication and navigation centers for the deep space network um and okay what one is in madrid 
One is in Canberra and one is in Goldstone, which is near like an old, used to be a mining town, but now it's dead. And they're all in places that are pretty much naked to avoid any, um, any interference from uh, noise. And their job is to track interplanetary spacecraft. So for example, the Mars Rover. Um, and so they're positioned in um, points around the Earth. They're separated by about 120 degrees longitude so that one of them is always inside of the spacecraft that they're tracking. Um, and the, at Goldstone, there are several antennas. What is that, like five of them? They're about 70 meter wide telescopes. They're radio telescopes and they transmit in the microwave bandwidth. They receive, sorry, but they also transmit in the microwave bandwidth as well. So they send uplink signals uh, to the spacecraft as well. So um, while they are mainly receivers, they also do have the ability to transmit. So that's super accurate in the scene where researchers just broadcast the five tones at Goldstone. Um, and then they start receiving pulses, uh, microwave pulses. Um, and the pulses are, you know, timed at intervals and the number of pulses and everything like that. And that represents the coordinates. Um, and that leads to the globe scene as well, which is just so great. So tactile. Um, yeah, yeah, that's just the quick Goldstone thing. Um, that's pretty much that. And I feel like I'm ready to go on to alien shit if you are. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So this is from the 70s, and the big question for me was what was up with UFO sightings in the 70s? But I started to go through the list of famous sightings because, well, there's, there's, a, there's a lot. The, the difficult mm. thing now is that it's become a real big topic now, and so all my um, efforts to research um, you know, UFO sightings as it really was historically, it's difficult because – it, the when you're trying to search for information online it's very saturated with contemporary stuff um yeah and and i was really trying to contextualize it in terms of the 70s but it's harder than it's <laughs> it's hard because it's now uh something which is contemporaneous and um that's that's kind of stressful do you remember uh, i was trying to remember yesterday and i could not um we've talked about this in an episode before and i can't Bob remember Lazar. what episode it was Oh, Bob Lazar, yeah. Where it was the whole thing about... I can't... What was it? I... Uh, uh, if I could find my notes, I won't bother looking for them right now. Um, There was something that was written, wasn't it? Wasn't it something like... Some guy wrote this idea of like, if there was alien life out there, how would we... How What stages would we go through for contact? And then he wrote out the list of all the different stages and I'm pretty sure it was written in a book or something. And then suddenly we started getting all these UFO sightings mm. that were like after this book was published that were very much online with what this book said we would do if we went to another planet to look for aliens. So that that was kind of the first thing for me that was very much like it's people are just people have just fucking taken this from uh, from this this story. It. We cannot. It's like such an impossible topic to get into. Like it's <laughs> the the UFO culture. I mean. Okay, let's let's just go back to the 40s. It is funny because the pilots were taken in the 40s and the first sightings does go back to 1940s, World War II pilots indeed. The first sightings were what World War II pilots, they, they called it Foo Fighters. Now we know where they got their name from, the band Foo Fighters. They used that as a term to explain um, unexplained lights that they would see. 
And it was not just one um, group of fighters. It was more than one. And there's been the CIA launched investigation in the 60s, which kind of ran dry about what it was. But the couple of suggestions as to what it could have been, um, one being battle fatigue, hallucinations, another being secret weapons, you know, by the Germans. But the truth is like, it's so much deeper than that as to like the complexity about shared visions and hallucinations or I, I actually really don't want to get into it, but I'm sure like if you, yeah. either you are a believer in my view or, and you can be led there or you can't be led there. And I think you and I land into the, like the park of people that cannot and will not be led down a path of suggestion that any of these things are from, you know, um, right. Yeah. Like, okay. Um, and so either you, you, you're amenable to it or you're not amenable to it. Um, doesn't matter. But anyway, and then another sighting in 1947, this is the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And this is considered what kicked off the, the craze. Actually, uh, he saw bright lights moving in formation while flying his small plane. And he described it as a flying saucer, flying saucer. And that is the term that would stick. 1947 we, is Roswell, obviously very famous case. Max Braswell, Brazel. He found debris in his property that was strange. He reported to officials, which got the government involved. The official explanation was a weather balloon. Blah, 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 blah. Um, blah, 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 blah. Um, McMinneville UFO photos in 1950. And then I just wrote whatever. I've actually had enough of this. It goes on and on and on. The first abduction was like in 1960, yeah. the reported abduction. Now, that's not my interest. I understand that in the 70s, this was like all the rage. And Steven Spielberg himself was like, he just totally believed UFOs were a thing. I mean, he believed in it a lot and he's since turned around. But that was very popular in the 70s. Um, there was a conspiratorial mood in America in the 70s due to the Watergate uh, scandal. 1972 to 1974 America was in the grips of this conspiracy by the government and so there was an issue in America of government trust and um conspiracy and so this yeah. led to a mood of conspiracies and mistrust in the government which I think is like strongly related to this craze about UFOs and the government being uh, lying to us. So I was looking mm. to sort of for an explanation and that was why I kind of, because it was suffocating like the online shit about UFOs. But so that's why I texted my mum, and then she just said, <laughs> maybe it sort of fit in with the psychedelic thing. Maybe people were tripping and thought that they saw stuff. Yeah. Also, Star Trek in the 60s and Star Wars in the 70s, all the classic sci-fi writers of the period, Heinlein, Asimov, Sturgeon, etc., sparked people's imagination. So you can combine people's imagination being led by science fiction, a countrywide distrust in the government because the government was shown to yeah. be lying to them, and combining these things together led to a craze. Um, and then I, also, yes. And then, go, yeah, go. No, I was going to say that I, um, oh, sorry, I found the notes and it wasn't Bob Lazar's episode. It was when we did alien. Oh yeah. 
So it's actually in the Alien episode that we talk about this. And what it was, was it's a guy called Robert Freitas wrote a book in 1950 where he laid out what he called the US military's seven steps to contact. And it's within those seven steps to contact that um, that he let, lists out and gets to the point of like, you know, non-harmful abductions and stuff like that. And then the first reported alien abduction happened in 1957. So that was why I think in that episode, I was like, it just seems to me like, as you're saying, there's this mistrust in the military. You've got this book that's describing what the military says the seven steps to contact are. And then suddenly in like 57, you get the, you know, oh, I've been abducted by an alien. Mm. And then you just had all of the, but then everyone is just confirmation bias in, um, oh, this happened to me, same thing. But everything that everyone talks about happening to them is what's laid out in these seven steps to contact. So nothing originated before there was an actual physical record of what something might be like. So that's why I was like, I just think it's all total fucking bullshit. But anyway, sorry, I just want to say that was in the Alien episode, not Bob Lazar. Alien. And also the yeah. sightings did drop off like once people actually had recording devices at hand um, and the mm. reported sightings tended to drop off once it was possible for us to record things. <laughs> Um, and so the demand of proof obviously went up because uh. people always were able to record. But now I don't know what the fuck's going on now, but I'm assuming like if we take the hint of government mistrust and, and conspiracy um, being part of the zeitgeist, um, yeah, maybe that explains it. But again, I... Dude, I... Uh, yeah, no, I have very, very, very strong feelings on my my beliefs that there has never ever ever been any alien visits to our planet um i stand by them and they're very fucking logical so like i just the thing that gets me the most about this idea right is first off you're expecting there to be another intelligent race somewhere near enough to us that they have been able to develop faster than light travel and come to us, which means they also have to be able to detect our presence. Now, the only way you can possibly detect the presence of a species is by detecting signals that we send out. There's no possible way to know that we're here without seeing the signals. We've only been sending radio signals out into the universe since like the 60s, which means that they would have to be within like a couple of light years for there to have been alien sightings in the 60s and the 70s which means that so there has to be a habitable planet within a couple of light years with advanced technology to be able to have detected very very weak signals sent out by us from the 60s then they have to have developed uh faster light technology they have to have been able to get here very quickly and the thing that I think the majority of people don't fucking actually know about our solar system is that we're not just planets wandering around in the Milky Way. We're not just a group of planets orbiting a sun. We're a group of planets orbiting a sun, surrounded by an asteroid belt, surrounded by an Oort cloud, and the Oort cloud is filled with rocks the size, like giant asteroids. Um, And that Oort cloud is a minimum of one like astronomical unit or no what is it it's like oh no sorry it's a minimum of one and a half light years across Mm -hmm. so you're expect you're telling me that you think an alien race has traversed the Oort cloud that is 1.5 light years across filled with rocks to find us nobody fucking knows we're here what are you talking about literally nobody knows we're here totally (laughs) but um 
what I wanted to discuss, oh yeah, there's a couple of things to discuss before the end of the episode. One is, of course, the, the title Close Encounters of the Third Kind does come from High Neck's scale on encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the close encounters of the first, second and third kind with the subcategories plus extra things that were added after his scale with the fourth and fifth uh, encounter so the first en- encounter of the first kind is a visual sighting like that's close 150 meters away being defined as close who cares <laughs> how many meters i mean it's so silly number two but i guess that's how they would categorize the reports so what was your report oh it was about 100 meters away so let's say okay that's a close encounter of the first kind close encounter of the second kind is interference with you so it causes paralysis. I couldn't move or there's a vision in my head or my radio went all crazy or my child's toys went crazy. That would be a close encounter of the second kind. And a close encounter of the third kind is a contact with an alien being. And that itself has categories from A to F, each with like a standing, each with a... um. Ah, oh, the comment section is crazy. Um, Ignore it. Okay, A stands for A, aboard. So the aliens were seen aboard the ship. B, both. The aliens were seen inside and outside the ship. C, close. The alien was seen near a UFO. D, direct. An entity is observed, but no UFO is seen around them however ufos had been sighted in the area by other people and were reported e excluded an entity was seen but no ufo has been seen or reported at all and f frequency as in intelligent communication was received by an alien but no sighting of the alien so that's all high next scale and then a couple of things were added onto the scale later by other people. Close encounter of the fourth kind is an abduction. And close encounter of the fifth kind is a human-initiated direct communication between aliens and humans oh. by sending out transmissions and something coming back. So that would be uh, contact. Yeah. Okay. Um, whatever. <laughs> Um, it's crazy but but they were seriously studying it throughout the 40s and the 60s they had to really yeah. study this they were receiving they were taking it incredibly seriously Hayek himself became very exhausted by the whole thing and decided that he didn't know whether or not like he he no longer was sure if there was or if there wasn't aliens anymore so he actually bowed out of it um, and so they needed to find a way to categorize all the different reports so that's what that was necessary um, and yeah. the last thing I wanted to discuss was the aliens themselves. Um, we see the aliens at the end. Um, and I just want to say that Spielberg clearly prescribes to my thesis, no clothes, no problem. <laughs> because he had them in no clothes to designate to us that they were no problem. <laughs> What did you think about the aliens themselves? The aliens themselves are like, so So when you've got the ones that are obviously like kids in costumes, like it's so goofy. <laughs> like the whole, they're running around, they're trying to, where do they go? It's literally like watching, like going to a kid's play and watching your little like, you know, 
five-year-olds try to get into the right line and going to the wrong place. Oh, no, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be over there. Like, that whole thing was so goofy. But then when the one comes out, when you just get that one on its own, then it becomes more kind of yeah. like, okay, we're, we're more in that zone. That's great. Um, I didn't get the first one. The, the first one that looked like the spider legs or something. Oof, like I, I was know. like, wait, what is happening? I didn't remember that. And I was looking and I was like, wait, that's not what the aliens look like. What? What is this? And then we never saw that again. So I was very confused. Yeah, he was like the welcome <laughs> wagon. Uh, it's funny to me because, you know, there's so much anticipation as to these highly intelligent beings. But then they come and they're basically, they're just these naked bloobs. Being yeah. like naked human babies, adult babies. That's what they were. They were like these adult baby, naked adult babies. It's like it. I wonder why that choice is made. Like, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder where the first image of that kind of version of an alien, like the whole little green man hmm. thing, came from. Did it come from this movie? Did it come from before? Way before. We've definitely covered it. Um, if we're for sure. Yeah, but I'm. I'm just like. I'm just like. Was it? What? What? What do you think the reasoning was that somebody thought, ah, oh, this is what they'd look like? Humanoids. Big eyes and green skin and like, it's some sort of sci-fi for sure that um that just envisioned it and it just captured people's minds. And it's also what people when people talk about being abducted by aliens reports. I'm very sorry to say yeah. that I did listen to Joe Rogan interviewing a guy who said he was a drug. I oh, can't no. believe this is happening. I <laughs> cannot believe Joe Rogan is saying, and then what did you see? And then what did they do? And then what did you do? And where were you? And what the room looked like? Joe Rogan has said himself, like he admits it himself. Joe Rogan is the most, like, what's the term? He's so susceptible to whoever he's speaking to. So if he's speaking to somebody that believes in aliens then he will like engage in that conversation like, oh my God, wow, and mm. that was amazing. And oh my God, wow, I can't believe that. And he'll believe that conversation. And then the very next conversation, the very next guest he could have on would be somebody saying, no, there's absolutely no fucking way. And he, again, would be like, oh wow, okay, I didn't realize that, I didn't know that. He believes whatever the conversation he's having at that moment. Well, he lets life. them talk freely. I mean, that's why it's so good yeah. because he's so good at allowing that person to feel comfortable that they're being believed and validated. No, and but it, he they promotes talk. so much misinformation I know. It's as a fucking... It's fucked, like, in hindsight. So but that's why his conversations go batshit because yeah. people feel super comfortable to talk. And un unfortunately, he's platformed some really damaging shit. Um but uh, yeah. um, but but the, but the people that report it talk about little man, big eyes, you know. So it's it's almost like it's really captured captured them. It's weird looking at this movie after it's become quite a trope because it's hard to take it seriously. So that's unfortunate. Yeah, such a serious, beautiful movie, and I felt at the end I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. All these little children <laughs> being like, oh, yeah. <laughs> It, it, I felt that, but then it made up for it when you had the one on yeah. their own. The one on their exchange own, student. very different. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like an exchange program. I I don't know if it was an exchange program, but I know that that Steven Spielberg at the time was like an exchange program. Oh my god, like that's interesting. And then that yeah. gave him sort of the impetus to do ET because he had yeah. through his own parents' divorce had this alien sort of imaginary friend and I think that that was churning in his head with that alien that yeah. speaks to them the idea of someone visiting here and then sort of he evolved those ideas with ET 
which is cute. And just yeah. another thing about um, Steve Spielberg, because now we have the Fablemans that talks about the fact that his father was a computer scientist and his mother was a musician, an artist. And so for him, yeah. that way his parents would communicate through synthesizers and music that was basically mathematics was sort of um, a way to, 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 buy, to cross the bridge between his mother and his father. Um, and it's funny because the use of music in this movie captures the hearts of people that would not otherwise be interested in science fiction. It leaps across from the genre to people that are musical and artistic. And that is really beautiful because it literally did that with the audience. But I think that he, the little Steven Spielberg, really wanted to be able to communicate with both his mother and his father together and have them have a shared language. Mm. Um, and that, that's quite interesting to me. Yeah. That's it. That's the whole, that's the episode. Okay. Yay. All right. <laughs> I've just seen that comment. I don't understand what. Just leave. I it's, don't you, understand. You can go. You can go. Like, we're, we're trying to get on I, with I, our I, jobs. We're what are we just, we're what not, are, but what I know. are we being dismissive about? We have, like, what the do you fuck? understand that like we're trying to record this episode she's in the morning I'm at night we have a job to get on with so that we have to still edit it yeah. no they we just no, have shit to do again we, we have shit to do okay you are very welcome to go elsewhere we don't um we try not to cooperate with the um we're dismissive yeah of people that are yeah because we are we are scientists we have um a lot of education between us we're very clever people and we don't need to give a platform to like every person everything we do is evidence-based we talk about things that are evidence-based so yeah we just miss certain things no problem all right let's get into our final section what the fuck play the yeah. music how ding what the fuck abby <laughs> did you have any moments in this movie that made you say yes oh, what the fuck yes 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 oh, what yes, the yes, fuck? yes yes go yeah <laughs> pretty early on in the movie right we've got um we've got they're at the house Mom's running around. Older kid is annoyed about something. Dad is not really with it. Small girl is around. Middle kid gets in caught and starts beating the doll to death. Oh, yeah. Is beating the doll so that the limbs are falling off the doll. What is happening? What is actually happening in that moment? That child is psychotic. That child in the background is a serial killer. Like, what is going... And none of the parents... Like, nothing is being paid attention. He's literally bashing the doll against the edge of the cot. Children. Let it, I was just like, what am I watching? Children, Children are psychotic. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work that way. It's like that that people <gasps> that are psychotic have an, uh, the empathy of a child. So it's not really fair to call, to call children psychopaths. But they are, technically psychopaths psychopaths yeah yeah this child was a psychopath i'm sorry he was all children are psychopaths <laughs> what what's your what the fuck i have three i mean oh hello well like an, <laughs> unexpected upon review like the, well the kiss at the end i was like well what the fuck like they have a patch at the end and i just was like like you're... did i miss the kiss yeah, they had a kiss right before she went down. They have a kiss. And I thought, what the fuck? Because of obvious, you know, personal reasons. But oh. I guess look, an expression yeah. of excitement and intimacy and sharing a moment together, all good. I'm actually not annoyed about that. And then um, 
Another what the fuck I wrote that I'm not really annoyed about was like call the police to look for the kid when the kid's running away. And she's like, Barry, Barry. (laughs) And then she's out the window. Yeah. Out the window. And he's like, I was like, your tiny child is in the forest. Like one of the woods. And there's just this little tiny running (laughs) off. (laughs) And I was like, why? What? So I, I was like, that. how am I not seeing? First I was like, it didn't cut back to her. So I assumed she ran straight away. So I was like, look, she was on the top story. Okay. What's she going to do? But then when you see her going through the, the forest, Barry, Barry. <laughs> and I'm like, if you got the police on this case, like they'd have all their trucks and lights and they'd be able to get a line. But then she did actually catch up with him. So I forgave it. Like at the end, like yeah. she, she did. But also like if your kid's running off, are you going to take the moment to stop in the kitchen at the phone? Because they didn't have mobile phones in the 70s. Again, so. yeah, I agree. Because I said before, yeah. like I did think the mother was trying to protect her kid with every breath and like, yeah. like I don't really agree with that. But the, the what the fuck I did was that she was sleeping in denim shorts. That's my what the yeah. fuck. Well, I assumed she was sick because she was coughing and everything when she woke up. So I assumed that she had gotten into bed sick. sick. Yeah. So it's not really what um, the fuck. And that that's why she was dressed. In her peasant shirt and <laughs> denim shorts. Yeah. She got into bed yeah. with her clothes on because she was sick. And also she might have been watching TV in bed and she might have been just exhausted yeah. and tired as like a mum with a crazy yeah. toddler, you know. Um, okay. Right. Yes. <sighs> Final verdicts. <laughs> Does it pass the here comes the Sam says I counted the number of women. I I mean no, but there wasn't that many main characters. Okay, so I counted Yes and no, I actually think it does. There was one woman in the crowd of all the military um government science people. There were two women in the red jumpsuit crowd. Mm-hmm. There were two women in the main cast who I mean I just happened to count them like I'm just yeah whatever yeah no it's whatever. it doesn't in terms of just having it a distribution doesn't. of women in terms of the cast in terms of that like, no, like there's no like, women, that big scene yeah. at the end and everything but when we're talking about characters when we're talking about main cast members like people that actually have characters and their own stuff going on then I mean our main characters are a man and a woman yeah there are two and they each have yes. their own individual story Absolutely. and she's not there because of him and he's not there because like it, it uh, so yeah. i i i give it a pass i get it and they also are hi someone just came greetings from berlin i'm very excited that we have someone in germany uh that's something. um we frida's moving there in I'm 2045 there in, in, not 24 no when i'm 40 when I'm oh 45. no when she's 45 <laughs> i'm moving there when i'm 45 um um what what i was gonna say was that there's a man and the woman and he's playing our archetypical male role of father and uh, you know Mm. and the anxiety that comes along with that and she is playing an archetype of mother as well so they're both having like their gender performance as well so it's it's cross both genders as to like what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman um very interesting stuff okay does it pass here comes the science test I mean, I think in terms of taking it that we would have um, like finding some way to communicate with aliens, then yeah, of course. But like, it, I, it's not a very scientific. Yeah. Well, I suppose. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, they they make it seem scientific, but I don't know from what you're saying that the that the language that was used was. Um, 
uh, in the context, exactly correct. I would I would try to answer the question in the context of the genre. So it's like in context of where if we're in a universe where aliens are there and they communicate in music, and then the uh, use of synthesizers in the Goldstone Telescope, and I mean it's hard to answer, so we can just give it a pass. Yeah, there is no it comes out. Okay, final verdicts. I love it. Love this movie. It was fun. It was really great. Technical stuff. I'm going to give it a 4.3. Probably 4.8. Amazing. Yeah, I think it probably deserves higher yeah. than that. Um, that's probably about oh, an average. I only took away a little bit because there was just some goofiness that I was like, mm. but it is absolutely. Um, yeah. It's phenomenal. Love it. Okay. Abby, what is next? Are we goofy? I'm so excited about my next choice. Like I am so I cannot explain to you how proud I am of my next movie choice. <laughs> we are doing. Wait one second. Sharknado? I'm just gonna make sure I get the No, we're not. That's that's in our mini series. You already have to do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> As if you could get away from that. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I got the title correct. We're doing. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> I'm so excited. Brina, I am so excited for you to see this movie. <laughs> the Adventures of Buckaroo. Buckaroo Banzai. Okay. So join us in two weeks for the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai and the Eighth Dimension. And <laughs> next week we're starting our new mini series with which is called Is It So Bad It's Good? or Is It Just Terrible? And yeah. we're starting with the adventures <laughs> of Pluto Nash. Yeah, um, which is just going to be terrible. <laughs> star- starring Eddie Is <laughs> It. Uh, so we're doing a mini series on terrible films and we'll judge whether it's so bad yeah. it's good. Um, well, maybe we'll start recording that. Probably have to really start getting a head on that maybe next yeah. week. Um, okay, good. So join us in two weeks for the adventures of Buckaroo, blah, blah, blah. And then next week we'll be doing Pluto Nash. Um, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, please, if you enjoy our podcast. And especially Shane, I met a fan and hasn't left a review. Um, so Shane, if you got to the end, please uh, leave us a review. And everybody else who likes our podcast, please review us. Otherwise, you can follow us on TikTok at Science at the Movies. We do our live recording uh, fortnightly usually or at Instagram at Science at the Movies. And you can get in touch with us, uh, scienceatthemovies at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, this fucking chat. Jesus. <laughs>